electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is the American Greed Podcast, presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. In this episode of American Greed, convicted stockbroker Jordan Belfort, a.k.a. the Wolf of Wall Street. He's funny, he's colorful, he can be charming as long as you stay 10 feet away with your wallet in your back pocket. I had a gift to get, get up before the crowd and sell and manipulate and I could have used it for good or I could have used it for evil. I used it for evil. When Hollywood turns his life of sex, drugs, and crime into a blockbuster, his victims feel cheated again. Too many people walk out of a movie and think they have seen the story. And it leaves out significant parts of the story, not the least of which is 1,500 people that lost real money. He was about as close as you could come to being a financial serial killer. It's late October, 1987. 25-year-old Jordan Belfort prepares for his first day as a stockbroker at the prestigious Wall Street firm L.F. Rothschild. The enthusiastic young man recently passed his Series 7 exam and is eager to begin a career in the world of high finance, as he tells CNBC's Jane Wells in a 2007 interview. My first day I walk in, and I watched people in their mid to late 20s making half a million, a million dollars a year in this raging bull market of the mid 80s. Belfort is a born salesman. The son of two accountants from Bayside, Queens, he ran his own meat and seafood delivery business before making the leap to Wall Street. This guy was driven from the get-go. He's very eager to please. He was in many ways self-taught. You knew you could sell. Knew I could sell. You know, this is going to be my future. I'm going to be a broker. Look at all these people getting rich. You'll be me too. But in a cruel turn of events, Belfort tells Wells that his first day on the job is Black Monday, October 19th, 1987. That Monday morning, I come in bright and bushy-tailed, and the market crashes 508 points on my first day as a stockbroker. Okay, and I'm at, and all of a sudden, everyone's like, it's over. The new broker is soon out of work, but refuses to give up. While flipping through the classifieds, Belfort's wife spots a job 30 miles away in Hapag, Long Island. I answered the ad, I went down to this place and I walked in, I was shocked. I was utterly shocked. And it was, and it was the first time I really walked into a penny stock firm. The firm is the Investor Center, a penny stock shop that pushes risky, small-time businesses for anywhere from 10 to 99 cents a share. Much to Belfort's surprise, he learns that the brokers make a healthy commission. As the manager explained to me, he's like, listen, your commission is, you get 50% of the bid and the ask. And I'm like, so if someone sends in a quarter million dollars in a trade, I get to keep 125,000? He's like, well, yeah, and, and no, it doesn't really work that way in the real world. No one will send that much money in for a penny stock. The manager tells Belfort only small-time investors buy penny stocks. 
But that doesn't stop the young broker from dreaming big. I was literally lying in bed one day and the light bulb went off. And I remember lying in bed looking up at the ceiling saying, I wonder what would happen if we just started calling all rich people. In 1989, at the age of 27, Belfort puts his theory to the test. He starts up his own brokerage firm, Stratton Oakmont, with his friend Danny Porish and a dozen salesmen from Long Island. The company eventually opens an office in the appropriately named village of Lake Success. And we went out and bought these, what they were called Dun & Bradstreet leads, and they were the names of business owners that had businesses in excess of a million dollars a year in sales. And that became our target market. To his dismay, Belfort discovers that his former boss was correct. Wealthy investors don't buy penny stocks. Then that night, I went home and it hit me. And I said, you know what, I know what's wrong. They never heard of the stock, they never heard of the broker term. You're fighting too much of an uphill battle. What we need to do is we need to start off with a big stock. Belfort writes a new pitch for his brokers, one that emphasizes building trust with clients through established blue-chip stocks. The technique becomes known as the Stratton Two-Step. The blue chips were used to basically lure the people in. That was the, what they called the first trade. They would do it with an IBM or an Eastman Kodak, for example. Those are companies that everybody knows about. Gregory Coleman is an FBI special agent who spent years investigating Stratton's sales methods. Once clients make a little money on the blue chip stocks, Coleman says Stratton's brokers then focus on the real business at hand, pitching the more profitable penny stocks. Once the customer sent the money in, shortly thereafter they would get a call about a second trade. But rather than pitching existing penny stocks, Belfort and Porish start underwriting their own initial public offerings. Stratton's house stocks often feature businesses like karate schools, independent movie studios, backyard technology startups. And he'd sneak in these IPOs, these obscure little IPOs, and he would say, oh, you know, I'm telling you, you can get in, it doesn't cost very much, you're gonna make a lot of money, trust me. Belfort would put their spin on it, his brokers would put their spin on it. And so these sort of undiscovered, unknown companies were touted as the next Microsoft, um, the next Dell computers. In an unusual move, Stratton sets the IPO prices well above a typical penny stock offering. He would try and get them listed on the NASDAQ over the uh, National Market Exchange. So although they were the same type of companies, they weren't selling at 5, 10, 15 cents per share. They would start at 4, 5, and 6 dollars. Belfort's talent for spinning a tail makes for a winning strategy. Under his direction, it's not unusual for the value of Stratton's house stocks to skyrocket, reaching 10, 15, even $20 a share. In just a matter of months, the company is making a killing on these diamonds in the rough. I always say, brokers don't sell stocks. Brokers sell a story. And once they convince the public of the story, the public buys the stocks. And that's what Belfort did. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. 
and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 bacon bundle. White Castle, follow your crave. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Under the leadership of Jordan Belfort, Stratton Oakmont becomes known as the place where you can make big cash by selling the hottest new stocks. In 1991, the company makes commission revenues of nearly $30 million. I was the best training ground for stockbrokers. You know, go to Stratton, become a train killer. But Stratton isn't your typical brokerage. Rather than employ Wall Street veterans, they instead have a unique hiring process. Stratton did something different. They wanted basically uneducated, unexperienced people to join their firm. You didn't even need a college degree? You didn't need a high school diploma. You didn't need anything. All you needed was to come into the room, swear loyalty to the Stratton way of life, and you know, we would show you how to get rich. They basically wanted, wanted us stupid so they could train us in their model. Carl is a former Stratton employee who says he's gone on to be a respected businessman and requests anonymity. He remembers the frenzy surrounding his first day on the job. They would bring in everybody for job interviews and they would put you in a room. They would ask, is anybody licensed in any other brokerage firm anywhere? And if anybody raised their hand, they'd throw them out right then and there. New employees are assigned to work the phones as cold callers, feeding clients to Belfort and the other salesmen. At its height, Stratton Oakmont employs more than 1,000 people, mostly young men. You walk into this huge room and all it is is guys sitting at tables. We were given leads to call and we called our leads and tried to get people on the phone all day long. The work is tedious. But the rewards are high, especially if you get promoted to broker. One kid that I knew who was there, who was barely 22 years old, driving uh, you know, a brand new Ferrari. Another kid who was 24, driving a Porsche. There were so many kids, and everyone was making so much money that it was like a, almost like a self-contained society. In a way, it was like a cult. And Jordan Belfort is the cult leader. Every morning, Belfort delivers a fiery, motivational speech, rallying the troops around the hot stock of the day. He would convince them that they were going to sell, sell, sell that stock. They were supposed to rip the client's hearts out through the phone. I said to my brokers, okay, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, I want you to rip their heads off, which, by the way, I stole from the movie Wall Street. That was a bit, the best thing ever, I thought, so I had to like kind of use those words to be like Michael Douglas. Because they're sheep sheep get slaughtered. Reading from Belfort's scripts, Stratton's army connects with clients across the country. Callers are expected to follow Belfort's scripts down to the word. We always figured ourselves as movie actors. We were given a script every day. 
and we would pitch whatever stock they told us to pitch. Belfort calls his sales technique the straight line philosophy. Callers are taught to do whatever it takes to close the deal. Stratton prints out ready-made comebacks to client excuses like, I don't like this company, I have another broker, and let me talk to my wife. You know, we would always say, I, I understand, Mr. Jones. Um, let me ask you, what would your wife be the most happiest with? Would your wife be happy with you making a good investment and making money on your investments and on your future? Yes. Well, that's exactly what I'm looking to do here for you today. Bob Sharon is the owner of a woman's garment company in Los Angeles. In March of 1992, he gets an unexpected phone call from a Stratton broker. Your name was given to me by a uh, classmate from Harvard Business School. And he said, I made him a lot of money in stocks, and he gave me your name. Are you interested? Bob's business has recently had a good run. He's sitting on some extra cash and jumps at the opportunity to expand his portfolio. Without ever checking in with his old college pal, Bob agrees to buy 300 shares of a blue chip pharmaceutical company. I know I bought 300 shares, and it was, I want to say, $9,000, and I made 11000 So, okay, feeling pretty good. Soon after, Bob invests over $7,000 on a Stratton house stock, another pharmaceutical company, and makes a $3,000 profit. Riding a winning streak, Bob's broker convinces him it's time to go big. They were very good at, at figuring your trigger points. Mine was, I'm an intelligent risk taker and will we'll reap the rewards from taking those risks. Bob invests $65,000 on another can't-miss Stratton house stock, DVI Health Services. My impressions are this could be big. You know, this could be a 25, 30% returns. Um, this is warrants some big money. In the Chicago suburbs, Tom Picorni has a similar encounter with a Stratton broker. A married father of two, Tom recently purchased his father's construction business. The company is successful, doing upwards of 25 million a year in business. But Tom needs cash to pay back his father. I had bought the company for I think a million five and I had to pay it off. So I was looking for other ways to do it. The broker encourages Tom to invest $20,000 in a blue chip stock. Within days, he makes a 10% return. The broker then pitches Tom on a hot Stratton IPO, Aqua Natural, a water purification company. You go to a grocery store and you bring in your own containers and you fill up with pure water. And I thought that was a good idea because the local grocery store did have it around here. The stock is another winner. Tom doubles his investment in just four days. His broker suggests he rolled his earnings into other Stratton House stocks. I think after the first month, I was up to uh, a few hundred thousand. But it was easy money. Before he turns 30 years old, Jordan Belfort is making $20 million a year as the head of Stratton Oakmont. Befitting a man of great wealth, he buys a waterfront mansion in the Hamptons. His main residence is a $1.7 million mansion in the wealthy village of Old Brookville. 
and I bought the house from Richie Grasso, back then was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. He even upgrades his marriage. Belfort divorces his first love and marries a beer commercial model, who he affectionately calls the Duchess. That's mine. Among his toys is a Ferrari Testarossa, just like Don Johnson drives in Miami Vice, and a 167-foot yacht that once belonged to Coco Chanel. And my wife begged me not to buy it, which is why I had to buy it. Because once she said, you, you can't, I said, I gotta buy it. So I wrote the check right away for the yacht. For how much? Five and a half million. With so much cash on hand, Belfort develops another expensive habit, drug addiction. Belfort dabbles in cocaine and prescription medications, but his favorite vice is quaaludes. He uses the 1970s-era sedative and party drug nearly every day, often making himself a drooling mess. Now, I had this, you know, rip-roaring drug habit. We used to go scuba diving on five quaaludes. I was on the bottom, I couldn't come up because I was so stoned. He was flying a helicopter on quaaludes without a pilot's license and lived. He told me he was taking 22 different drugs at one point. I don't know how that's physically possible. The party continues back at the Stratton offices. The atmosphere often resembles a fraternity house rather than a prestigious brokerage. It was really um, just a culture of um, debauchery and it was a drug dealer's heaven there. Sex in the office is common. Young female assistants are passed around almost as much as the drugs. Belfort once offers a female broker $10,000 to shave her head. Other employees are paid to perform outrageous stunts. I remember somebody bringing in a thing like in the um, carnivals where you can get electrocuted and they would pay someone 10,000 if they could hold it that way. Former SEC senior special counsel, Ron Rubin. Somehow you just had a group of 13-year-old boys who never grew up. Making this outrageous decadence possible is the lucrative IPOs that Stratton underwrites. Stratton ultimately takes 34 companies public, and nearly everyone is a winner. But Stratton's success isn't what it appears to be. For years, they've manipulated every facet of their house stocks. Stratton was a classic um, pump and dump uh, securities firm. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Joel Cohen is a former assistant United States attorney who eventually prosecutes Belfort. 
they would pump up the price of the stock by getting innocent investors to buy it based upon blatantly false representations about what it was worth. The Fed say Stratton has been running the scam since the firm's earliest days. FBI Special Agent Gregory Coleman. In order for Belfort to manipulate his security offerings, it relates to supply and demand. What Belfort does is he has to constrict the supply. He has to reduce the supply while simultaneously increasing the demand. The demand side is easy. Stratton pays its young employees big commissions to push the risky stocks and drive up their price. So the question becomes, how does Belfort constrict the supply? According to the feds, Stratton secretly hoards massive amounts of new issue stock before it goes public. Belfort stashes the shares with accomplices he calls rat holes. Many of them were friends. Some of them were people that sold them cars. One famously was uh, the house Quaaludes dealer for the Stratton Oakmont firm. Rat holes are instructed to hold on to the shares until Stratton is able to pump up the price of the stock. A rat hole may get 100,000 shares. They would get the stock at five. It would go to 10, it would go to 15, it would go to 20, it would go to 25. And when it got to 25, they would then flip it back to Stratton. At the peak price, Stratton then sells the rat hole shares to unsuspecting investors. The increase in volume eventually causes the price to plummet, leaving investors holding massive quantities of worthless stock. So all of the rat holes would, would make huge profits off of a stock that in fact was worth nothing or next to nothing, and then the entire price, price would collapse thereafter because there was no legitimate market for these stocks uh, other than the victims. As part of the arrangement, rat holes agree to give the profits back to Stratton while receiving a kickback in return for their assistance. For many of them, they would, they would get a check for twenty-five dollars or $50,000 or cash for $100,000, some piece of the profits. Investors like Bob Sharon have no idea they're pawns in Stratton's game. After making a profit on his initial investments, Bob gradually starts losing money on all his Stratton house stocks. He calls his broker to sell his shares, but they won't comply. At first, he's insisting that, no, 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 you can't get out, you gotta do this, uh, that we've got bigger ones here. But now, by then, I probably had $250,000 tied up in it. The next day, he discovers that his broker sold the shares, but then flipped it into another stock without his consent. The new stock is plummeting even faster than before. Now we were just, I mean, screaming at the top of our lungs at each other, and him screaming back, they're too stupid to ever make any money in anything, you know, um, you're a worthless piece of crap. Bob eventually gets his broker to return what money he has left, around $80,000. But his losses are well over $100,000. Outside of Chicago, Tom Picorni's losses are even greater. Well, I had an account there with about a million in it, and uh, one day they just took it all and put it in stocks, two different stocks, two or three different stocks. And then within days, it was almost gone. In late 1991, the Securities and Exchange Commission is officially investigating the firm after receiving numerous complaints. Several months later, the FBI is brought in when it's determined that Stratton's misdeeds are greater than previously thought. We weren't involved in securities cases before that. It was mid-1992. They formed a brand new squad 
whose sole function was to investigate Wall Street-related crimes. The SEC sends agents to the brokerage to scour their records, but Belfort makes their stay an uncomfortable one. He cranks the air conditioning to freezing levels and bugs the room. I said, these guys are dumb enough to set up shop in my own conference room. They're going to run their investigation. They kind of deserved it, I thought. While the SEC investigates, Belfort makes plans to protect his fortune. In August 1993, he flies to Europe to meet with officials at a private bank in Geneva, Switzerland. Belfort was schooled on different ways of setting up bank accounts and corporations through these people in Switzerland to hide and disguise his money. Belfort's wife has an aunt who lives in London, a 65-year-old retired schoolteacher. Belfort opens a Swiss bank account in the woman's name. According to Belfort, he just sort of represented that he was trying to evade some taxes, and she agreed to do it. What did your wife's aunt think of the whole thing? Oh, she thought it was fabulous. Over the next year, Belfort begins smuggling cash to the bank through his Quaalude dealer, whose wife is a Swiss citizen. She was born, raised, and, and grew up in Switzerland. She spoke French. She knew her way around the banking system. So it was sort of the perfect couple to bring in. The FBI says the couple transport over $1.3 million overseas. Almost all of it was done in suitcases. It was done, they would hide it in their socks in different bags. They would break it up among different pieces of luggage. In December 1993, Belfort finds himself flush with even more cash when Stratton embarks on one of its biggest IPOs yet, Steve Madden's shoes. Steve Madden was a good story. They used to call him the cobbler, the guy who's selling shoes out of the trunk of his car. Unlike most of the Stratton deals, it actually had value and a real idea with, with products that people really want to buy. Madden is a childhood friend of Belfort's right-hand man, Danny Porish. He's worked as a rat hole for Stratton over the past two years. But on this day, it's his company that's the star of the show. Stratton's army of callers can't sell the shares fast enough. Belfort claims Stratton makes $23 million in just two hours. Former assistant United States attorney for the Eastern District of New York, Joel Cohen. The stock was manipulated in the same ways that the other IPOs that Stratton Oakmont controlled were manipulated. But the good times don't last long. In February 1994, the SEC has enough evidence to take Stratton to court for securities fraud. Stratton's shelf life was short. The lawsuits were building up against them. They could hear the footsteps. Under pressure, Stratton agrees to a settlement with the agency. The company doesn't admit to any wrongdoing, but it agrees to pay a $2.5 million penalty. As part of the agreement, Belfort must personally pay a $100,000 fine and leave the company he founded. In 1994, Belfort's barred from the business for life. They really put a great spin on it, you know, that he, he could have won, he could have beat it, but he didn't want to drag Stratton down, so he's going to step down for the good of the firm. In the aftermath of the judgment, Stratton arranges a deal to pay Belfort a whopping $180 million for his stake in the company. He'll be paid $12 million a year over the next 15 years. 
This is $180 million for a company that had no intrinsic value. If you take away manipulation, the only thing that company was worth was the rent on a warehouse and a parking lot in suburban Long Island. Danny Porish is officially named the head of Stratton. But despite the ruling, Belfort is far from being out of the picture. What he was doing was, was operating Stratton from behind the scenes, um, just no longer coming to the office, but fully participating in all the remaining IPOs they did. It didn't miss a beat, really, because we always figured that Belfort was really in charge anyway. With the civil case settled, the FBI continues to pursue criminal charges against Belfort and Stratton. But its case is proving to be difficult. Because the brokers and the other employees were making so much money, he really lured him in and he created a very loyal following. So there was no incentive to cooperate with us at all. While Belfort continually looks over his shoulder, an unlikely and completely unrelated event all but seals his fate. A thousand miles away in Miami, U.S. customs agents are working an undercover money laundering case involving a South American drug cartel. We were purporting to be narcotics smugglers. So we were soliciting, uh, in a sting type of provision, these Swiss bankers. David Marwell is a special agent in charge for Homeland Security and a former special agent with the U.S. Customs Service. So in November of 1994, um, at the culmination of the investigation, we arrested a multitude of, of people, as well as a couple of Swiss bankers at the time in Florida. Belfort's banker just happens to be one of the men arrested. With his back against the wall, the Swiss banker opens the vault on his secrets, telling the feds that Jordan Belfort is one of his clients. Marwell calls the SEC to deliver the news. The SEC was kind of shocked, and they immediately said, you got to reach out to this FBI agent by the name of Greg Coleman. Agent Coleman has long suspected Belfort is illegally moving cash overseas. He now has proof. It confirmed our suspicions. It confirmed that I was not going down a road which was going to lead to a dead end. So it was, in some senses, a very big score. While the FBI solidifies its case, in 1996, the end finally arrives for Stratton Oakmont. In June, the National Association of Securities Dealers begins proceedings against the firm for their fraudulent activities. By December, Stratton is expelled from the industry, closing its doors for good. A former Stratton Oakmont employee who asked to remain anonymous says, And everyone knew it was coming. We thought we were being persecuted unfairly, of course. Obviously, we weren't. In the fall of 1998, the FBI and Department of Justice finally have all the information they need to take Belfort down. At September, the FBI arrests Jordan Belfort and Danny Porish for money laundering and securities fraud. Their bail is set at $10 million each. Belfort came up with the money within three days. We just put up $10 million uh, in cash and jewels and a, a Brinks truck had arrived with his, with his wife's jewelry. The feds tell Belfort they know everything. The money laundering, the Swiss banker, the rat holes. Faced with the threat of 25 years in prison, Belfort makes a decision. Do you fight it, do you plea, or do you cooperate? And in my mind, you know, fighting it wasn't really an option. It was the toughest decision that I ever had to make. I didn't really have much of a choice. 
Belfort agrees to cooperate with the feds, telling them intimate details of how the scam operated. The hard thing was um, doing it in an orderly way because there was so much to cover. There were so many entrails to the, to, the, to the fraud they were engaged in. Over the next 12 months, the wolf becomes a rat. Belfort agrees to wear a wire and meet with his friends and associates. Several former Strattonites are now running their own crooked firms, where they continue the scams they learn from their mentors. They were actually operating four or five other firms, which were perpetuating the same kinds of fraud. And we wanted to stop that crime from happening um, because it was spreading. Belfort secretly tapes dozens of conversations, such as this meeting in which an associate offers to hide Belfort's money in Asia. And then once you get that money, then you transfer the transfer to another account that you control, which will be like a double set up in Singapore. He became uh, an actually a very, very good cooperator. He made tapes, many, many telephone tapes, many body recordings for us against a number of people. In September 1999, Belfort and Porish officially plead guilty to securities fraud and money laundering. The men admit they manipulated the stocks of 34 companies, costing investors over $200 million. The exact number of victims is unknown, but it's believed to be more than 1,500 people. Well, there were dozens, probably hundreds and hundreds of investors who lost the bulk of their life savings because of what these guys did. In 2003, almost four years after pleading guilty to running a stock pump and dump scheme, Jordan Belfort and Danny Porish are both sentenced to four years in federal prison. Despite stealing over $200 million, the men avoid a lengthy sentence. Back in uh, the time frame that Belfort and Porish were sentenced, it really just was not viewed as a serious crime, as it is now. Their cooperation with the government significantly reduces the sentences. Thanks to their assistance, the Department of Justice is able to get convictions on dozens of Belfort's associates. There were probably 75 people that were prosecuted, um, people in, in the securities industry, accountants, lawyers. As part of their punishment, Belfort and Porish must jointly pay $110 million in restitution. The men are required to pay 50% of all future earnings toward the fund. The first down payment is made when the government seizes more than $10 million worth of assets from Belfort. Cars, houses, jewelry, bank accounts, all of those assets are ultimately forfeited to the government. Belfort's home in Old Brookville was seized by us his beach home in Southampton, Long Island. In 2004, Belfort is sent to the Taft Federal Correctional Institution outside of Bakersfield, California. After living a drug-fueled existence for most of the past decade, it's only fitting that his cellmate is none other than Tommy Chong, one half of the stoner comedy duo Cheech and Chong. CNBC reporter Jane Wells. Of all the inmates in the entire federal prison system, he gets Tommy Chong as his cellmate, who was in prison for, I think, selling bongs across state lines back then. While in prison, Belfort entertains his cellmate with wild tales of life at Stratton. The two become close friends. You know, we, what are you doing when you're in, when you're in jail? You, just, you have a lot of time, so you tell stories. I would tell him stories, and he would tell me stories. And we, he would say to me, God, you should write a book. Belfort follows Chong's advice and starts putting pen to paper. He also enters a prison rehab program. 
After 22 months behind bars, Jordan Belfort is released early for good behavior. Stratton Oakmont victim Tom Percorni. I think he should have been in jail longer. I mean, two years, two years for wrecking thousands of people's lives. Upon release, Belfort moves to Manhattan Beach, California, just south of Los Angeles, where he finishes writing his autobiography. In 2007, Random House publishes his first book, The Wolf of Wall Street. It's a vulgar and hedonistic romp filled with sex, drugs, and deviant behavior. And I was just writing the truth as it came out of my head. And this is what I wrote. And then some of that I look back, I'm like, ugh, but it was true. Those who know Belfort find the book's title amusing. Never heard anybody call him the Wolf of Wall Street. Former assistant U.S. attorney Joel Cohen. First time I learned of it was when I picked up a copy of his book and came to learn that he was claiming that that was his nickname. The book is a modest success, but it generates plenty of buzz. In 2007, Jane Wells interviews Belfort on his book tour. He says he's a changed man. I believe everyone is entitled to be forgiven. I didn't murder anybody. It's not as bad as that. It's not. It was a financial crime. I have a chance to maybe not reverse what I did, but to try to make good on it. In December 2013, Belfort's life story hits the silver screen at Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. I have offered our lovely sales assistant, Danielle Harrison, here $10,000 to shave a <laughs> the film is a hit, grossing nearly $400 million worldwide. Belfort is paid just over $1 million for the movie rights and other fees. Toward the end of the film, Belfort himself makes a cameo. The world's greatest sales trainer, Mr. Jordan Belfort. And to me, the most astounding part of that was that they're basically doing a what amounts to an advertisement pitch for Belfort's motivational speaking company. Since his release from prison, the convicted felon has built a lucrative second career as a motivational speaker. Belfort claims he's paid $30,000 per engagement, mostly speaking about business ethics and how to use his straight-line sales technique. So I want you to feel confident that once you master this skill, it's going to change your life on every level. Admirers pay anywhere from $50 to $2,000 for the experience. Belfort maintains that he's determined to pay off his debts. Yeah, I'm like, listen, I think this, this, this movie for, for that is an amazing thing because I'm giving 100% of all the profits from the movie and both books. And the, the books is really... You really are compelled to give, unless I'm wrong, 50% of all your gross earnings straight to, to no. paying back. Is that not right anymore? That's not right. That, was that, it ever the case? Yes, for I was on probation. But now you're off probation, you're no yes. longer compelled to legally. Not legally. But the government says Belfort is spinning another tale. In October 2013, the Department of Justice files court papers saying Belfort is still legally obligated to pay 50% of his income. They say he has contributed just $11.6 to the restitution fund. More than 10 million of that coming from the seizure of his assets a decade ago. Ron Rubin. And I, I just have no doubt that if it's up to him, he won't be giving the money back to the victims. The government says Belfort pays just $21,000 from his million dollar movie deal in 2011. In 2010, they say he pays nothing at all. What I see and hear from him 
is a man who mouths the words remorse, uses the word remorse, but doesn't act on it. He hasn't been repaying his victims. The matter is still being negotiated. Jordan Belfort declined American Greed's request for an interview. Former Stratton investors say seeing Belfort in the spotlight has opened up old wounds again. Tom Picorni lost $800,000 to Stratton. He believes his financial difficulties cost him his marriage. After about the first four, three or four years, I, I basically try to block it out. His movie came up, and that's when I started getting phone calls from everybody on it. And then my oldest son uh, saw him on TV where he said he paid everybody back. And I just, that kind of made me mad because he hasn't paid anybody back. Bob Sharon actually lives just a few miles from Belford. Their kids even attended the same school. But Sharon says he has no desire to confront the man who stole more than $100,000 from him. What am I going to go up to him and say, you know, Jordan, you owe me $130,000. Would you please write me a check? I don't sit around with resentment, because then I would lose twice, you know. I lost the money. I don't need to lose peace of mind by harboring a lot of resentment about it. As for Agent Coleman, he says he hopes Belfort's new business ventures are legit. If he makes more money at what he's doing, he can pay back more victim investors. I hope what he does for the rest of his life is clean and he stays out of trouble, because if he ever steps over the line, I want him to know I'll be there to arrest him again. Thanks for listening to the American Greed Podcast, presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.